chapter 12. It's good to be with you. It's good to sing with you. It's good to take communion together. We um, probably can do with more awe in our lives. Would you agree with that? Write that word down in your notes. A-W-E. I went to public school, just FYI. So just so you guys know. Uh, awe. Uh, read a study recently, and, and this would be a fascinating study to be a part. Um, they say the fact that awe has largely disappeared from our lives, and the, the restoration of awe-filled moments is actually the key to a, uh, a better life. That the fact that we live in a world that Perhaps we've, we've lost this sense of, you know, what gives us goosebumps, what, what causes our jaws to drop, what causes us to, to perhaps lose our breath. Research regularly says that the benefits for our physical and mental well-being, as well as increasing uh, in, in the sense of awe, it increases compassion, generosity, and critical thinking ability. So the University of Southern California, uh, there's a scientist there that says, what awe does is it sharpens our brains. It says that with a decrease, uh, that when we're living in awe, there's a decreased marker for chronic inflammation associated with cancer, heart disease, diabetes, arthritis, and bowel diseases. That's not too fun, but we'll, we won't talk about that. But this idea that there ought to be, we're wired for these awakenings of transcendence and helping people get closer to their authentic lives. When you hear the word awe, what do you think of? Awesome. What else? When you think of awe, can you think of a certain place, certain location, certain experience? The Grand Canyon. Isn't that the number one thing? Like, you never go to the edge of the Grand Canyon and stand on the edge and think you're great. Right? Like, everyone's pretty speechless. What else? What are some other awe moments maybe you've experienced? The heavens, the stars. And as much as we continue to get pictures and footage back from the universe, we're just constantly just like, it doesn't really answer questions, but it just continues to leave us in awe, doesn't it? What else? Yeah, Cowboys winning a football game, right? That awe hasn't happened in a long time in my world. So um, would you agree that we've, we were, we've lost this sense of being in awe? And not just of the Grand Canyon, not just of the stars, not just the fact that the Cowboys suck, but haven't we lost this sense of just noticing the small things in, in life? They said in this study, more often, awe is about other people. Like, I can't believe how that little kid's riding that bike at such a young age. Or the fact that there's someone who's kind to you and that, that kindness has made you teary. Uh, there was a recent uh, interview I saw with Piers Morgan and Jordan Peterson. I don't know if you guys saw it. Um, whether you like Piers Morgan, whether you like Jordan Peterson, I don't care. They had a conversation. They don't, they don't like each other, but that's all right. If you guys know who Jordan Peterson, he's a psychologist, speaks on a lot on masculinity, and he feels strongly about just this kind of this, this tragic uh, destruction of the masculine soul in our cult culture. I think he's got some good things to say. He gets teary on this interview recently. Uh, YouTube it, watch it this week, and he just says, what, what we've lost in our culture is this just sense of being kind and compassionate to one another. Could kindness and compassion be that sense of restoring that awe that I think scientists are saying are just going to make us better people? This, this has benefits that just go beyond anything we could ever imagine. In psychological fields, being made to feel small is known as self-diminishment, and it helps us to be a kinder, generous, more cooperative people. How are you doing in this realm of self-diminishment? And it is hard to live in awe when we're trying to make ourselves great, and, and yet that's not why we're, we're created. There's only one who's great, and his name is God. And when you live in light of this God, you know, you can't help but feel humbled and, and, and this experience of self-diminishment. But here's the thing. It's hard to trust God when things aren't working out the way you thought they are going to work out. When there's difficulties and trials and, and storms and it's hard to look to God, and sometimes we lean on our own strength, don't we? We, we do these, these, these things called self-maneuvering, where we try to make our lives better. And, and I think God, more uh, than in the 
feast times, it's during those famine seasons he's trying to get our attention. And to be in awe of him, whether things are working out the way we want them to or not, that's difficult. Would you not agree with that? that? That we have a hard time being in awe of a God that is allowing things to happen in our lives that we're, we're, not, we're not excited about, we're not open to, we're not ready to accept. And I think what we see in Acts 12 is, is it speaks to this issue. So turn there in your Bibles, and we're going we're gonna to take two weeks and look at this chapter. Um, as we navigate the book of Acts, God is growing his church, and his church is not an institution, it is the, the body of, of believers, men and women in Christ, that's the church. We believe in the organic nature of the church versus the organizational nature of the church, amen? Uh, and God is growing in his church, and the gates of hell will not stand against his church. So as much as there are difficulties around us and perhaps opposition, well, we have to understand that there's a greater throne in the heavens that controls the th throne here on earth. Any earthly throne is subservient to the ultimate eternal throne that's occupied by our God. And, and this is part of the message of, of Acts, because what we see is that the, the church advances, and as the church advances, it doesn't advance without difficulty. And if there's one thing I know about my journey with Jesus in the 37 years that I have been loved by Jesus and, and saved in Christ, is that maturity does not come without opposition. Our growth in Jesus doesn't come without some sort of uh, adversarial uh, effect, either from people, from circumstances, my own sin that God's still trying to, you know, r eradicate out of my life. And so um, we see in Acts 12 this, this situation where things aren't going to get better for the church. We, we've celebrated all the growth, right? And all of a sudden, chapter 12 opens with this like, bam, where did that come from moment? You ever have those in your life? Look at Acts chapter 12. Let's look through this together. We're going to look at five main points, 1 through 17, that I think are going to help us, I hope, get clarity of the fact that God is still a God to be in awe of, that what God does or doesn't do is still worthy of praise, whether we like it or not. Thank goodness he doesn't ask us, hey, you, you guys want to script out your life? You want to script... My life would be drama-free. How about you? If God asked you to participate in scripting out your life, we would avoid all adversarial issues, all difficult circumstances, all uh, tragic events. But yet that's not how the people of God are developed and matured. And this is seen in Acts chapter 12. So turn there if you would. Look at verse 1. So the church has been growing like crazy. We've been celebrating what, what God has been doing in Jerusalem and Antioch through people like Peter, uh, uh, Paul, Barnabas. So we come to chapter 12, and all of a sudden there's this moment of, once again, like reality hits and, and things are difficult for this church. Look at verse 1 of chapter 12. So about that time, Herod the king laid hands on some who belonged to the church in order to mistreat them. And he had James, the brother of John, put to death with a sword, beheaded. And when he saw that it pleased the Jews, he went ahead and arrested Peter as well. Now, that was during the days of unleavened bread. And when he had seized him, he put him in prison, delivering him to four squads of soldiers to guard him, intending after the Passover to bring him out before the people and, and behead him too. And verse 5, so Peter was kept in prison but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church to God. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, Peter was sleeping between two soldiers bound by two chains, and the guards in front of the door were watching over the prison. And behold, an angel of the Lord suddenly appeared, and a light shone in the cell and struck Peter's side and roused him, saying, Get up quickly. And his chains fell off his hands. And the angel said to him, Gird yourself and put on your sandals. And he did so, and he said to him, Wrap up your cloak around and, and follow me. It sounds like a mom getting her kids ready in the morning, doesn't it? Like, let's get your shoes on. Let's go, right? We got places to go and people to see. And he went out, and he continued to follow, and he did not know that what was being done was by the angel was real, so he's almost kind of sleepwalking, right? But thought it was he was seeing a vision. But when they had passed the first and second guard, they came to the iron gate that leads into the city, which opened for them by itself. And they went out and went along one street, and immediately the angel departed from him. And when Peter came to himself, he said, Now I know for sure that the Lord had sent forth his angel and rescued me from the hand of Herod and from all the Jewish people that uh, were expecting. And when he realized this, he went to the house of Mary, the mother of John, who was also called Mark. So it's John Mark's mom. She had a really cool place, 
big pad there in Jerusalem where many were gathered together and were praying. And when he knocked at the door of the gate, a servant girl named Rhoda came to answer. So she's like a teenage girl that hangs out there. She recognized Peter's voice, but because of her joy, she did not open the gate, but ran in and announced that Peter was standing at the front of the gate. And they said to her, you're crazy. You're out of your mind. There's no way that God answers prayer, right? This is just too good to be true. But she kept insisting that it was so, and they kept saying, go, it's just an angel, it's just some messenger, leave us alone, we've got bigger things to do, we've got to pray for Peter, right? But Peter continued knocking, and when they opened the door, they saw him and were amazed. That is not an amazement of belief, that's an amazement of unbelief, we'll talk about that here in a moment. But motioning to them with his hand to be silent, he described to them how the Lord had led him out of the prison, and he said, report these things to James and the brethren, and he departed and went to another place. May God write his eternal truths upon our hearts this morning. So this is, a, this is a, an amazing scene. This is a scene that ought to create awe in us, right? This is a scene where we're going, wow. You know, the natural realm is being interrupted by the supernatural realm. Like, there's a God who is actively involved in the lives of his people. We see this here. And, and even as God is active, I love the humor and the, the human element in the story, too, that just tells us, like, yeah, like, these people were praying, and they didn't know when prayer was being answered right there before their very eyes. And so this really speaks to multiple things. So let's, let's talk through this from the beginning. The first thing I think we need to see is that there's the sabotaging of the leaders, right? Herod sets out to get rid of these leaders in the church. Look at verse 1, verse 2. So at that time, Herod the king. Now, you need to know there's multiple Herods found in the Bible. Each one of them has stood in opposition to God. I'm going to tell you right now, right out of the gate, if you stand in opposition to God, you will lose. There's no simpler way to put it. With God, you win. Against God, you lose. Is that, is that a good equation or what? If you're here today and you don't know God, you are fighting a battle. You will lose. Herod's, the, Herod the Great, so this Herod's grandfather was the one in Matthew that put all the kids to death because he heard the Messiah was going to be born and he needed to eliminate every male child in the region. He was opposed to God's plan. This Herod's uncle, Herod Antipas, was the one who beheaded John after Salome did the sultry dance. And Herod said, ask whatever you want, right? Because he was just, he was smitten by lust. She goes, give me the head of John the Baptist. Kills John the Baptist. And it's also the same Herod that was part of the trials of Jesus. Standing against God's plan, you better believe it. This Herod, again, just in the tradition of his family, stands in the way of what God wants to do. And then there's another Herod that Paul will stand against in Acts 25. Herod was not a good name. These were not good dudes. Their only mission was to destroy the church. Let me say this one more time in case you missed it. Opposing God and his people is a lose-lose situation. Even though... God allows tyrants to do things to his people. This doesn't mean God is not in control. This means that God has a greater plan than we could ever imagine. See, there are people in our world that love power. And they will do anything to hold on to that power. Herod was a people pleaser. He's a glory seeker. He's a Jesus hater. Sounds like most of the politicians in Washington, doesn't it? We won't name any names. How dare you? But ladies and gentlemen, what we have to understand is that truth, and we believe Jesus is the truth. We believe we are people of the truth. We believe that the, the Bible is the truth. Has for in every generation been attacked by people who don't want to submit to it, who see themselves as the highest authority, the highest power. And so we need to understand something, and I, and I, I want to speak from the heart on this, is that the evil one always loves to attack his church, God's church. And when the, the enemy attacks the church, oftentimes he goes for the leadership of the church. That's why Herod's going, Wow, look at the response that people had when I beheaded James. Now I'll go get Peter. Let's just keep working ourselves down the line. These were the, the main dudes in charge of the church. 
and can I just, just say something? You need to pray for the leadership of the church. And I, and I can't say that earnestly, honestly enough. You need to pray for the leadership of this church. Because oftentimes the leadership, their spouses, their, their kids, have the biggest targets on them. Right? Your pastor is not immune to this. Your pastor's wife, the first lady, as we call her, she's not immune to this. She doesn't have her own parking spot yet, but we're working on that. We're not immune to this. And here's one thing we don't need from the church is criticism and complaining and condemning because maybe we said something to offend you. Maybe we looked at you the wrong way. I look at people the wrong way all the time. Does this offend you? <laughs> you know, well, what? Is it because I didn't give you a hug on a Sunday? Is it because I didn't give you a call? Is it because I didn't follow up on some sort of prayer item you had told me? Guess what? There's this thing called being human. You're human. I'm human. Let's put ourselves on that level foundation first and foremost. Don't let my position as pastor make it seem like, oh, he's got it all together. Spend two hours with me and you'll realize quickly I don't. Come hang out at my house and you'll realize that I yell at my kids and kick the dog and sometimes the order's reversed in that. Yell the dog, kick the kids. I don't do it too harsh, but you know. Here's what I'm saying to you. Extend grace like we've extended to you. There are churches that you don't have access to leadership like you have access here. I give you my phone number. We invite you to our house, right? The last thing you need to do is criticize something we've said or done without first giving us a chance to say, hey, let us hear you out. I didn't mean to say it like that. I'm sorry. Like our lives are so busy trying to help people love Jesus and walk with Jesus. Last thing we need is the church being those that are like, well, we've kept this ledger for two years and you said this and you did this. Let me just tell you right now, we've got enough going on. We got enough going on. Let's grow together. Let's pursue Jesus together. Let's extend one another grace. Let's give one another the benefit of the doubt. And let's learn to love one another and just realize that even the leadership of the church, we're going to make mistakes. We're going to have things fall through the cracks. We're not perfect. And you know what? I thank God for that. Because living at a perfect level is a hard level to stay at. And I don't want to stay there. I want to be in the fields with all the other sheep because guess what? I smell like sheep just like you smell like sheep. And sheep are stinky, aren't they? Go, woo! Do you guys hear me? Do you hear my heart? I can't emphasize this enough. We don't need your attacks. We need your prayers. We don't need your criticisms. We need your compassion. We don't need you to be the sideline critic. We need you to be in the trenches with us fighting the good fight because it is the lives of men and women that are at stake and that's what the leadership has devoted their lives to. So can we storm hell with a squirt gun together and do things for the glory of God in the name of Jesus and still be friends even though we realize we're going to offend you, we're going we're gonna to make you mad? No? Okay, well, let's just go home then. <laughs> just kidding. I'm keeping it real with you guys. I'm keeping it real with you guys because I want you to participate in the work that God is doing. I don't want you to be an obstacle to what God is doing. And all God's people said, don't miss this. When Herod attacks with a sword, you see what the church does? They pray. Point number two. They pray, even though sometimes their prayers don't necessarily... Uh, get answered the way they would want them to. The second point is this. Look at the suffering of the faithful. Here's what I, I continue to learn, is that even when you're faithful to God and doing what God wants you to do, that doesn't mean you're immune now from suffering or pain or difficulty. James gets his head chopped off. Look at Herod. Takes the brother of John, James, and he puts him to death with a sword. This is beheading. And you were beheaded in this culture for one of two reasons. Either you were a murderer or you were an apostate or a blasphemer. And so because they're preaching Jesus as the king, well, other earthly kings don't appreciate this, so they put him to death by the sword. 
Now, I want you to know something about James, this brother of John. These are the guys that are part of the inner three. Can you write down three names in your notes? James, John, Peter. So here's what I love about Jesus' tribe. He had a tribe of 12. And out of that tribe, he had an inner three that he would take on special journeys. Now, how did that make the rest of the tribe feel? I don't know. Did they have their criticisms of Jesus? Oh, Jesus is playing his favorites again. Because it was James, John, Peter that got to witness the raising of Jairus' daughter from the dead. They were the only ones that witnessed that. They were the ones that on the Mount of Transfiguration saw the, the glory of God fully on display, right? Those were the only three that saw it. So James, John, Peter were part of this, this inner three. And, and, and yet, they're, they're human, right? Like, James and John are brothers. They're called the sons of thunder. I often think my kids, my two boys, are the sons of thunder as well. But that's another story for another time. But these were the sons of thunder. You want to know why? Because they were probably the youngest of the disciples called. They were teenagers. And I'll tell you what, these guys were firebrands. These were the guys that went into Samaritan territory and said, Jesus, the Samaritans don't like you. Can we call down fire from heaven on them right now? And Jesus is like, simmer down, slow down. Like, we're not going to go there, right? These were the guys whose mom, so you kind of kind of know where they got it from, went to Jesus and said, hey, when you get to your kingdom, can you save the right and left hand sides of the throne for my two boys? Got to love those moms out there, right? And Jesus, in all his kindness to the mom and to the boys, is like, if you only knew what you're asking. Because the seats in heaven don't come without first drinking a cup of suffering. Like, you want glory for your kids? That's fine. But just so you know, with me, glory doesn't come without first suffering. And once you know it, what Jesus had said in Mark 10 is happening right here. James is the first apostle martyred in the church. His brother John would be the last apostle who dies of old age. But he went through a life of suffering, being dipped in hot oil, being exiled to an island called Patmos, the one who received the, the revelation, right, the last letter of the, of the scriptures. These are two men, two brothers that form a parenthesis over the 12 disciples and that Jesus says James would be the first to die, John would be the last, but every single one of those disciples would experience suffering and drink that cup of suffering because you don't get glory without first suffering. But James was such a pivotal part of the church, faithful to the end, he had made up his mind that he was going to honor God in his life, even if it meant dying for Christ. Now, as you know, Peter is going to get thrown in jail, and Peter's rescued. And here's the question that pops up in our heads. Why didn't God save James like he saves Peter? Because these are men that embraced philosophies, and here they are. Write them down in your notes. There's, there's this sense that they're going to glorify God in death, and they're going to glorify God in life. What's the common connector between these two thoughts? You're going to glorify God. Here's what God wants you to do as a faithful person is that you accept whatever circumstances come into your life and your mentality is this, I'm going to glorify God. Whether things work out or they don't. Whether I get terminal illness or I don't. Whether I lose my family or I keep all my family. Whether I lose my job or whether I keep my job. It doesn't matter what happens. If your mentality is to be faithful to the Lord and your, your heart says, I'm going to glorify God through the famine and through the feast, through the storm and through the sunny weather, God is going to honor a life like that. See, James... I think is more than willing to lay his life down for the Savior because when you think of the cost of what the Savior has done for you, why wouldn't you give him your lives? And there's a sense that there's something better yet to come. We have grown our roots so deep into this world, we forget about the treasure that is our citizenship in a heavenly place that's far better than anything this world can offer. I know some of you are like, Man, we get to come to church and talk about death. Guess what? Something we're all going to experience. The king of kings can use miraculous deliverance or he can use martyrdom for the gospel advancement. 
See, what we forget is that God can work in the good and bad that he allows into our lives. We're called to glorify God in death, just like James. James, this brother of John, he submitted himself to execution while his brother John submitted himself to exile. And James' death is the only recorded death of one of the 12 apostles in Scripture. And we know through tradition that other disciples gave up their lives, being crucified, being crucified upside down, being beheaded, etc., etc. But here's the thing. When you got a guy who's going to glorify his God in death, like James, it puts us face to face with eternity. And I think it forces us to ask, would we do that? Are we willing to lay down our lives for him who laid down his life for us? Have we tasted the goodness of God that we've said, I've done away with petty pursuits and trivial anxieties in my life, and I want to be fired with the same zeal that fired James? There's a Romanian pastor. I love this quote. I won't even try to pronounce his name, but this was in the late 70s. He said this against his government as he stood against his government because they wanted him to be quiet about Jesus. Here's what he said. He said, sir, your supreme weapon is killing. My supreme weapon is dying. When you get to a place like that, I can't help but think of William Wallace. I can't help but think of Maximus from Gladiator. You know, aren't we inspired by people who go on like, you know what? We're like, Balls to the wall. We're going to live for our cause. And what greater cause to live for than the cause of Christ? Fear him who doesn't have the power, who has the power to kill just your body. Fear him, Jesus says, who has the power to kill not only the body, but also your soul. You ready? You ready for this? Because he wants you to glorify God. If if it means in your death, then you're going to say, I'm going to go out for the glory of Jesus. But in the meantime, we can glorify God in our lives. Amen? We're going to suffer terribly. Some of us are going through suffering right now. And we're believing that God can heal and deliver miraculously, right? We don't want to be people who don't pray that. We want to be people who say, while we can't predict the ways of God, we still want to cry out to him. We still want to call out to him. His ways are always wise. His ways are always good. His ways are always just. But when we think about this mentality that's required to endure suffering and be faithful in our suffering, I don't think you can get a better place in Philippians chapter 1. Look at what Paul says in Philippians chapter 1, verse 14. He says this. We have the scripture up there. 114 Philippians. Paul writes, so he's writing from jail, and he's writing this book about hope and encouragement. So Philippians 1, verse 14. There it is. And most of the brothers, having become confident in the Lord by my imprisonment. So, here's what Paul's saying. I've taken an adverse situation, and I've turned it into an opportunity for the gospel to advance. Ladies and gentlemen, whatever situation you are in, as a believer in Jesus Christ, your first question is this, how do I glorify God in this moment? Any other question is going to sabotage your joy. Can I, I'm going to say that again. As a believer in Christ, what you're saying is, I believe my God is good, and he's just, and he's merciful, and he's gracious. You have to get to a place where you say, no matter what happens, my first question is this. How does God want me to glorify him in this moment? Paul says, I'm in imprisonment. And there are people coming to know Jesus through my chains. And much more bold to speak the word without fear. Then he continues a few verses later in verse 20 of chapter 1. He says this, It is my eager expectation and hope that I will not be at all ashamed but that with full courage now, as always, Christ will be honored in my body. No matter what happens, he's about ready to be beheaded, just FYI, that Christ is honored in my body, whether by life or by death. So there it is, a decision to glorify God in death or in life. For to me to live is Christ, but to die 
is gain. Some of you are like, oh, I've heard that verse before. That was my little daily crumb I heard on Christian radio the other day. Look at the context. Right? Are you going to be the believer that says, I'm going to choose to live for Christ? And if, if it means dying, guess what? That's gain. Because I get to be in my eternal home with my eternal father and worship the Lord who laid down his life for me 24-7. Can you imagine that? What is this world going to offer me? Nothing. What does Christ offer me? Everything. And he says, if I am to live in the flesh. So, if I'm going to continue on in this world, it means fruitful labor for me. I'm going to keep doing what God wants me to do. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. So here's a guy who's like, it's win-win. So you oppose God, it's lose-lose. But if you adore God, it's win-win. No matter what happens in our lives, and I'm not mitigating and minimizing what's going on in our lives, but I'm the guy who's going to say, let's rise in our perspective. Yet, what shall I choose? I cannot tell. I'm hard-pressed between the two. My desire is to depart and be with Christ, for that is far better. But to remain in the flesh is more necessary on your account. And think about how other-centered that is. While I'm here, I'm going to serve you. But I'm going to tell you right now, there's part of me that goes, boy, but, but my eternal home? woohoo! Can't wait. And we live between these two worlds. We live between these two worlds. And we have to ask ourselves, are we ready? You ready to die for Jesus? Are you, are you ready to glorify God in your death? And, and, and until that time, are you going to glorify God in your life? Because here's what doesn't matter. Are the difficulties, the storms, the persecutions, the oppression, the adversarial people you might have in your life, what doesn't matter are those things. What matters is where your heart is anchored. So I'm watching Hurricane Ian this week. How many of you are watching Hurricane Ian? Mind-blowing, the power, the destruction, praying for those people. We, we have churches and pastor friends that live there, and they're rebuilding. And, but what was fascinating is while this Hurricane Ian is moving just out of the Gulf into, into Florida, the meteorologist, the one I was watching, uh, said, if you look in the eye of the hurricane, there's a bunch of birds just hanging out, cruising around, just like, you know, doing their thing. And he's like, those birds will fly in the center of that hurricane as it just continues because they realize that this is the safest place to be. The eye, calm just calm, and they had this footage that was brought by these, these guys that are flying into hurricanes and studying hurricanes. Would that not be an awesome job? Just side note, right? Like, and it's like a stadium. It looks like a stadium. You're in this arena, and it's filled with just rain and lightning and thunder and just cataclysmic, intense behavior, right? But there you are in the center, and there's nothing going on. And these birds have learned to live in the eye as it moves along because they know outside of the eye, it's dangerous. And I'm like, there's no safer place to be for us than in the center of God's will, in the center of God's love, in the center of God's compassion. Like, have we lost our sense of awe that there's an awe, who, uh, a God who could destroy us at any moment but chooses not to? And there's this sense of awe that arises in our hearts that says there's a lot of stuff going on in our world. And yet to be reminded that our God is still on the throne, that the earthly throne does not overpower the kingdom throne of God. Ladies and gentlemen, let's raise our sense of perspective and sense of awe that when you're with God, there's nothing anyone could do toward you that's going to disrupt your relationship with him. If God is for you, who can be against you? Romans chapter 8. Check it out. Take two Romans chapter 8s, call me in the morning. You'll feel better about your situation, trust me. Which, this third point makes it, just really ties in with what I'm talking about. The sleep of the just. Look at Peter. So, Herod kills James. He says, oh, it made the, the people like, pleased with me. Let's just go ahead and move down the line. Let's get Peter in here. They arrest Peter, but it just so happens it's Passover and the Feast of the Unleavened Bread. Now, this goes back to Exodus and the deliverance of God of the people out of Egypt. 
what Peter's about ready to experience is a greater exodus of God's delivering power. Do you believe that your God is a God who can deliver you? Here, here's something you need to understand. We'll talk about this here in a moment. Your God has the ability to rescue anyone at any time from any place. You know what that's called? God's sovereignty. <laughs> Peter gets imprisoned. Look at verse 5. So Peter was kept in prison, but prayer for him was being made fervently by the church. And on the very night when Herod was about to bring him forward, so he's in prison. We don't know how many days, but it's on the eve that the celebration comes to an end. They weren't allowed to put anyone to death during the Feast of Unleavened Bread. But on the very eve, at the 11th hour, who hates it when God comes through at the 11th hour? Like, God, really, you could have saved me from so much stress and anxiety, right? But here's Peter. What is he doing? Look at verse 6. He is sleeping between two soldiers bound with two chains and guards in front of the door watching over the prison. And even when an angel shows up, the angel has to go, Peter, wake up. This guy is sound asleep. This is what we're going to call the sleep of the just. How does someone sleep so deeply when they know the next day they're going to lose their head? It's called the sleep of the just. I'm going to tell you. Here is a man at peace with himself and, and with God. Here is a man who's been here before. Can I just, just let you guys know, this is his third imprisonment. Acts 4, Acts 5, Acts 12. Peter's like, yeah, I've done this before. Kind of getting, kind of getting, uh, getting used to this, right? He has a testimony that says, I know my God can deliver me. He's done it before. I can trust the Father and that he has control of my life because he's demonstrated this to me before. And even if God doesn't deliver me, I still know that obedience to God is the greatest thing that can be a motivator in my life. And therefore, because I'm at peace with myself and peace with him, I can withstand any difficulty. So here's, here's Peter sleeping. He's guarded by soldiers... Now, now, here's the key. This is, and, and you need to write these verses down. We're going to talk about. Even though Peter is guarded by soldiers, his heart is guarded by God. Even though Peter is surrounded by maximum security situation, his mind is secured by God. And I may... Mind and heart are incredible things to think about when it comes to your trust in God, especially in those difficult situ situations, especially in the 11th hour moments. How do you guard your hearts and minds in Christ? Well, write down Philippians chapter 4. Paul says this, don't be anxious about anything. Notice there's not an asterisk and it says, see the fine print, except for your relationships. Your job, your neighbors, your health, your car, your lack of car, your whatever. Don't be anxious about anything. But in everything, pray. Let your requests be made known to God. Be thankful. Like, we forget the Thanksgiving part of it, don't we? Thanksgiving keeps us from being monsters before God, from being entitled little brats before God. Thankfulness is realizing that I need to thank God for everything, the good and the bad. But I'm going to let my heart be no made known to him. And when you do that, the peace of God, which surpasses all understanding, will guard your hearts and your minds in Christ Jesus. Now, the part I left off that I don't want to forget is verse 8. So therefore, fix your minds on that which is pure and excellent and worthwhile and noble and worthy of praise. Where's your mindset? Because some of you live Christian lives like you're Chicken Little. You guys remember Chicken Little? What was his famous phrase? The sky is falling. My life's falling apart. La, 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 la. No, 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 no. You need to rise above that. 
You need to rise above that. You need to embrace the, the, the admonishment of, of Philippians. Even Peter himself would later write these verses in 1 Peter chapter 5, verses uh, 6 and 7. Humble yourselves, therefore, under the mighty hand of God, so that at the proper time he may exalt you, casting all your anxieties on him because he cares for you. And all God's people said, what? Yeah. So here is Peter sleeping like a Calvinist, sleeping like a baby in prison because he knows God is in control, that God cares for him, and he's got not a worry in the world. How many of you can use some sleep like that? Here's the problem. Your heart's not guarded by God. Your, your mind is not secure by the word of God. Without the world, word of God, you're a dead man or woman. You will be destroyed. You guys are, you're feeding off news 24-7. You're feeding off social media 24-7. And you think this gives life? Guys, it's got to stop. I dare you, whatever amount of time you give to Hulu, whatever time you give to TikTok, you give double the time to God and watch your life change. But you know how we treat God? We treat him like chump change. Like, ah, I got a few minutes left on the toilet. I'll pick up my Bible and read one verse and think that's going to carry me through. Wrong. Isaiah 41. I pray this for us. Fear not, the Lord says, for I am with you. Be not dismayed, for I am your God. I will strengthen you. I will help you. I will uphold you with my righteous right hand. Think this is what Paul, Peter was thinking in prison? You think this is what he was dreaming about as he's going into REM stage four or five? How about Psalm 121? Write this down. I will lift my eyes to the hills. From where does my help come from? It doesn't come from social media. It doesn't come from Washington, D.C. It doesn't come from whatever person I'm voting for. My hope comes from the Lord, the one who made the heavens and the earth. The one that you sit there and go, look at the stars, look at the Grand Canyon, look at the kid ride his bike. I'm in awe, not of that very thing, but the one who's authored this stuff. Where does my help come from? It comes from the Lord, who's made the heavens and the earth. He will not let your foot be moved. He who keeps you will not slumber. Even though you sleep, he doesn't, which makes us help, help us sleep better, right? Because when you sleep, he is constantly working on the behalf of those who love him and who he wants to fully support. Behold, he who keeps Israel will neither slumber nor sleep. The Lord is your keeper. The Lord is your shade in your right hand. The sun shall not strike you by day, nor the moon by night. The Lord will keep you from all evil. He will keep your life. The Lord will keep you going out and keep you coming in from this time forth and forevermore. Is that not awesome? Memorize these things. Hide these things in your heart. You need to sleep knowing your God is taking care of you. You're not going to understand it, Siri. You're an Apple product. That's the problem. Peter's heart is flying freely in the storm he is experiencing. But as he's flying in the storm, his heart is anchored, and I can't help but think he's thinking about Jesus sleeping on the boat during the storm. Remember that scene? And all the disciples are like, ah! Jesus, wake up. Don't you care for us? And Jesus, like, he's like, what's going on, you guys? Like, I think Jesus is just like that. He's like cool cat. He was just like, guys, you're afraid of the wrong thing. See, here's the lesson. Why are you fearing the storm? You ought to fear the one who controls the storm. I mean, did not the sun wake up and say, be still. Done. And the disciples are like, whoa. And Jesus says to them, do not fear what or who can kill your body, but fear and trust me because I rule over the storms. Is that where your heart's at? Do you, do you know the God who calms the storms? Do you know the God who's creator of the heavens and the earth? Do you know the God who cares for you more than he cares for anything else? Can you adopt the same position as Daniel's friends, Daniel chapter 3, Shadrach, Meshach, and Abednego? 
who were, who were compelled to worship the statue. And they said, we're not going to worship that statue. And they said, well, you're going to lose your lives. They said, well, go, bring it on. And just before they're thrown into the fire, they will not bow and worship the earthly king. Their allegiance is to the heavenly king. And they say to the king with such confidence, I love it. If you throw us in there, here's what we know about our God. He could deliver us. But even if he doesn't, we will never bow and worship you. Woo! Come on now. Holy defiance, which is bred from holy dependence. You guys, you and I need to understand that we have nothing to fear. Death has been swallowed up by the resurrection and the life. His name is Jesus. What have you to fear? To live as Christ, but to die as there you go. You're paying attention. Praise God. Don't you know that what life we have to live here is a gift, and we're going to live it for the glory of God, but the experience of life that is yet to come is so much better, so much richer, so much fuller, so much purer, and more joyful that we can ever, ever imagine, and we're going to shake our heads in wonder that we were ever reluctant to leave this world. Two things that are going to anchor your heart that we see in this passage, faith and prayer. Faith is what Peter is demonstrating, sleeping soundly in prison. But prayer is what's being given by the church on his behalf. And they are praying fervently. When was the last time you did anything fervently? There's, intensi there's intensity in this, right? Peter would later write in 2, Corinthians, uh, 2 Peter chapter 2, look what he writes. For then the Lord knows how to re rescue the godly from trials. You, you think he's writing from personal experience in this? To keep the unrighteous under punishment until the day of judgment. What's his heart anchored in? Point number four, the sovereignty of the Lord. What does the sovereignty of God mean? It means that there is a throne in heaven that is in full control and no earthly throne could ever rival his throne. I'm driving on the freeway the other day, probably going too fast. Uh, people are really quick to point that out. Like, I saw Sozo 1 driving over the speed limit the other day. Okay, and your point is what? That's the snarky pastor that I am. I need to start a podcast called The Snarky po Pastor, don't I? All right, so uh, I'm driving a Broadway curve. There's a billboard, and here's what it says. St. Michael. Protect us in battle. I'm going, now I'm used to seeing Chick-fil-A. I'm used to seeing Diamondbacks and whatever. But I'm like, this is a really curious billboard. St. Michael, protect us in battle. I'm going to tell you right now. If your life is dependent on a saint, you're going to be miserable. Can I get an amen from somebody? I'm not bashing my Roman Catholic friends. But I'm going to tell you right now that there is an unholy dependence on things outside of God. Right? We're not, we're not going to give you a bunch of charms and a bunch of trinkets and a bunch of things that you need to pray on and pray against and pray. Here's what you have. You have a God who's sovereign. He's the one who may protect you in battle. He may not. Because here's what God's sovereignty is. Whether it's good or bad, he's in control of it all. And it's not for you to determine which is which. You're to trust the God who is good and wise and just. And so we turn here and we see where, where Peter's heart's at, that God is sovereign. And sovereignty is written all over this. Look what happens. The angel comes to rescue Peter. Now, there is a maximum security presence in this prison. Just so you know, 16 men are guarding Peter. And they went above and beyond to make sure he didn't escape because, again, this has happened before. <laughs> Isn't it amazing how God rescues people and even those who are unbelievers still continue to persist in their unbelief even when they see God rescue others? 
So they shackle each arm to a, a guard, and there's two guards outside the door, and then there's 16 total that are watching out for this guy. And an angel just shows up, a light shines. He says, Peter, wake up. He is so sound asleep that he has to, literally the angel kicks him in the ribs. That's what strike means. He has to kick him in the ribs. And then there's such disarray, right? Like the, the, the sandals are on the wrong feet. The tunic isn't like really fitted on there, right? His hair is a mess. He hasn't had his morning coffee. This is the middle of the night. And he's stumbling out, just following the angel, right? And the door miraculously opens. He ends up on the street. And all of a sudden, the angel disappears. And he finally comes to his senses. He goes, I've been rescued. I've been, I've been, I've been rescued. Like, he can take credit for nothing that has happened, which is exactly where God wants us oftentimes. He doesn't need you budding up to him being like, hey, look what we did together. No, God's going like, this is my hand. This is my deliverance. Only God gets the glory, amen? So then Peter goes, where do I need to go? Well, I know that the church has gathered at Mary's house. Mary's house was a really popular place. It was big. It was palatial. Had a pool. Had a, probably a, a slide into the pool. Had a pool bar. It probably had a big screen TV. You know, it was a nice little setup. Everyone was praying there. Dozens, perhaps hundreds of people. So where does he go? He goes, I'm going to go where the church is gathered because here's what I know the church is doing. They're praying. Isn't that, wouldn't that be an awesome place to be at where you just know, if there's one thing I know the church is doing, they're praying for me. Don't we need to get there as a, as a community? Like I know that when, some, when someone's in a difficult situation, I know people are praying for me. And I know that when there's times that we just need to seek the Lord, Lord's heart, that people are praying. So Peter goes, I know where the church is and I know what they're doing. So in the middle of the night, he goes, knocks on the gate, right? Here's God's sovereignty, right? Knocks on the gate. He can get out of the gate of the maximum secure prison. He can't get in the gate of Mary's house. This is the irony of it all, Right? And, and, I, and I want you to know that there is no storm God cannot calm and there's no lock God cannot pick. If he chooses to rescue you, he will rescue you. And this is what he does by hands of the angel. And like I said before, God can deliver anyone at any time in any place. He is in control. Here's what you need to be reminded of is your power and position as God's kids. Write those two words down, power and position. We forget the fact that we will never be orphaned by God. We forget the fact that God is in control and he has promised to never abandon us or leave us. Ephesians 3, verse 20. Do we have that uh, verse up? Do we believe the words of Paul? Nope, that's a good one if we're talking about giving, but we won't talk about that. But look at this. Now to him who is able to do far more abundantly than all that we can ask or think according to the power at work within us. Paul can't help but express his praise in the God who says, I'm going to take care of you, and I'm going to give you all the resources needed for you to survive in this world. Don't we tend to forget about our position and power in Christ? And probably one of the greatest resources we have is that what we're going to talk about here at the very end. We're done with this point, the supplication of the saints. What does supplication mean? It means you're praying. You're letting your requests be made known to God. Philippians chapter 4, right? Earthly wickedness is no match against divine weapons, specifically prayer. Here is not the concern. Unanswered prayer, that's not the concern. Here's the concern, unoffered prayer. Let me just tell you guys something. We need to pray. And I'm going to tell you right now, while prayer oftentimes is our last resort, we need to understand biblically it is the first and best response in any situation. That when the church says in verse 5, they're praying for the, for the church, they're praying for, for Peter, right? And that Peter gets out and they're still praying. This shows you that they are fervent about prayer. Prayer is the only power the powerless possess. Let me say that again. Prayer is the only power the powerless possess. And I love what Queen Mary, Queen of Scots, said about John Knox during the Reformation. This is 400 years ago. She says, I fear the prayers of John Knox, who was a pastor, more than the, the army of a 1,000 people. 
is, this, is the church seen in our world as that, such a force that there are men and women first and foremost on their knees seeking this holy defiance and holy dependence upon God that their first response in any situation is to come before the Lord our God and to beseech him, to, to behold him, to request things of him, to submit themselves to him. This is what prayer is, right? It is an act of faith in God's sovereignty. It is my heart saying, not only am I going to wholly defy what's going on in this world, there's a holy dependence that's anchoring me because I don't want to lean on my own power. I don't want to lean on my own wisdom. I don't want to be the self-maneuvering person. Only God can come through. Because here's what happens. If you don't lean on God, you lean on yourself. And you lean on yourself, and it only leads to more destruction. Some of you have taken matters into your own hands, and you've made it worse. Can I get an amen from somebody? You know that's true. It is confidence in God. It is, a, it is our hopeless and powerless state of mind that the world wants us to live in, and we're going to re-anchor ourselves because we have a God who has promised to come alongside of us and fight on our behalf. I want to introduce something to you, and this is, I believe, what the church is doing here. The Psalms are great places to start when it comes to praying. I want you to understand that there are Psalms that are called morning prayers and there are psalms that are called evening prayers and i want i want to just leave you and we're going to continue this in the weeks to come as we talk about prayer because this is such an important part of not only this church but our church and 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 it needs to be more so i admit that that god finds his church praying and i think if we think about our lives this way there are evening prayers and there are morning prayers. And this is the Psalms. I gave you two examples, Psalm 4, Psalm 5. When at night you pray, here's what you need to pray. You need to pray about your worries. This is what helped Peter sleep, the sleep of the just. He submitted himself to the Lord, cast all of his anxieties on him, right? And Psalm 4 has this amazing verse in uh, verse 8 that says, In peace I will both lie down and sleep, for you alone, O Lord, make me dwell in safety. That as you go through the world, you live your day, at the end of the day, aren't you bogged down with the things that are worrisome and anxiety-filled and stressful? Psalm 4 says, you pray your worries to God. You surrender those worries to him and let him manage what needs to be managed while you sleep and rest, right? He comes to, Peter comes to the church in the middle of the night and, and they're worried. They're worried about Peter. They've just had James killed. Now there's Peter that's next. This church is concerned. And what are they praying? They're praying evening prayers. They're casting their worries on God. See, things that are making us angry, things that are making us sad, here's what we need to do. We remind ourselves of the promises of God. The promises of God. And this is how David prays in his prayer. He pours out his heart of worry to God, his Father. We need to develop probably more of a practice of praying at night this way. That there would be this incredible sense of peace, this capacity to rest, knowing that our prayers are heard by the one who holds the world in his hands. That the mighty arm of God controls the universe. And that while you sleep, he is working on your behalf. But when you wake up in the morning, there's these prayers that we call morning prayers that you pray for your world. Because you're about ready to step foot into it. And let me just tell you, we're, we're stepping into a lot of messes, aren't we? And Psalm 5 talks about this. And we need to have these active petitionary prayers where we pray boldly against the world things that are not right. We're walking into workplace environments and school environments and family environments and relationship environments and all sorts of things. And, and, and the one thing that God wants us to be, be aware of is, is our hearts. 
and that I can't let my heart get angry, and I can't let my heart get resentful, and I can't let my heart get bitter, and I can't let all the things that are being bombarded at me during that day to, to take this joy away. I need to pray for these things. You pray for adverse situations. You pray for difficult people, right? You pray for your enemies. You love your enemies. And you go into this world with this prayerful mindset that I am entering this world that is hostile to God. And Father, as I am interacting with people that are hostile to you, let my heart remain compassionate, merciful, gracious, kind, loving, Christ-like. And I tell you what, if you start to develop this practice of at night praying your worries to God, sleeping soundly in His sovereignty, waking up and entering your day with a desire to glorify Him in life or death, it's going to do something for your soul. I can't tell you how I'm, I rejoice. When I, send out, I pray for you guys. And when I send a text message out to you and, pray, and say I'm praying for you, that's legit. I'm praying for you. Forgive me for not following up. For, forgive me for, for not being, but I'm praying for you and rejoicing over the fact that a couple weeks ago we had a woman in this church. Her dad was 95 and he was dying. And she's like, more than anything, I pray that he would find Jesus. And guess what he does before his final moments? He accepts Jesus. Because God answers the prayers of his people. And now there's a guy named Bob in eternity that one day you're going to meet because the church was praying for him. Amen? Amen? And there's people that are going through difficult situations even as we speak. Woman in our midst who's got cancer. And you know what? Her hopefulness is like an encouragement to me. Her like, I'm going to trust God through this. I'm going, oh, we're going to still pray for you. But whatever the outcome, her decision is I'm going to glorify God in life or death. It doesn't matter. I'm going to glorify him. I'm praying for that. I'm praying for her heart. I'm praying for people in this church, and it is exciting when God moves and acts and does miraculous things. But you have to pray, and here's the kicker, you have to pray with belief. Write that word down, belief. Because this is what the early church didn't pray with. This is why they didn't answer the door when Peter was out there knocking, going, guys, the answer to your prayer is here. They're inside talking good theology, but the one thing they lacked was this, this awareness of how God answers prayer. Can I just tell you something? Good theology plus unbelief often leads to fear and confusion. We have churches that preach good, good theology, but we also have churches, while the theology is good, there's this sense of unbelief where we've lost this sense of God doing the miraculous. God doing those awe-inspiring things, whether it be life or death, that God is active and we're aware of this, and sometimes we don't recognize what God is doing. When God cures someone of a terminal disease, we go, praise God. But what about the attitude of someone not being cured of that terminal disease and yet devoted to Christ and saying, I'm going to glorify God in this disease. Why aren't we praising God still for that? Let us be a believing people. Let us be a, a people who we are in awe of how God answers prayer, whether they work out the way we want to work out or not, that God is living and active and he's bringing all things to glorify him. Romans 8, 28. He's causing all things to work together for good for those who are called according to his purpose. Man, so I leave you with this. We will not see Peter again. Briefly in Acts 15. But at this moment, Peter, while he explains to the church what has happened, Peter slips off the stage of history because he's making room for a guy named Paul who's going to take over what's going on in Acts. But Peter can teach us a lot. Amen? His life, for better or for worse, serves an example to us. But here's a guy who's telling us, humble yourselves. Humble yourselves before the Lord. Cast all your anxieties on him. And guess what? He's going to come through for you. And all God's people said, feel like you drink from a water fountain today? How about a fire hydrant? That's better. You guys are awesome. Let's stand. Let's pray. Father, thank you for t today. Thank you for the word. Your word given to us, 
to strengthen our faith, to strengthen our belief, to keep us in awe of who you are and what you're doing. Father, forgive us for failing to see things from your perspective. Forgive us for failing to understand who you are, what kind of God you are, your characteristics, your attributes. Father, forgive us for giving too much attention to to worldly powers and worldly wisdom. Help us to rise above it. Help us to be men and women who adopt the the, the motto that says that whether it be life or death, we're going to glorify you. Where are we to go to have hope? You, God, are our hope. Where does our help come from? It comes from the Lord, the maker of heaven and earth. And in Him, we will take confidence. In Him, we will believe. So Lord, guide our steps, direct our hearts, anchor us in You. And we pray this in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. Amen. May the Lord bless you and keep you. May the Lord lift his face toward you and give you his grace and peace forever and ever. Amen. Have a great day.